0: This is the Education Gadfly Show. Oh, I
1: promised I wouldn't say mean things about millennial parents, but I'm having a hard time. I, Come on! <laughs> What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You at the Education Gadfly show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Kristen Soltis-Anderson. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank
2: you for having me.
1: Yeah, Kristen is a pollster. Do you like that for, uh, term? Is that okay?
2: You know, it used to be a fairly neutral thing you could say about yourself, yeah. but now pollster has become like saying you're a know, lawyer know, or... or... a lobbyist.
1: <laughs> uh, well. What can we say? A uh,
2: researcher. Well, researcher. opinion researcher. Ah,
1: good. <laughs> and co founder of Echelon Insights, a research and analytics firm. Also, please welcome my co host, David Griffith.
0: Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure.
1: You have never been a lobbyist or a
0: pollster. Or a lawyer, I don't think, right? I am uh, descended from two lawyers. Ah, uh, okay. But
2: well, technically, I guess I shouldn't be running away from the word pollster, since that is the name of my podcast, <laughs> The Pollsters. Uh, so I, I really, this is, I can't disavow this, yeah, but right. I'm a I'm, I'm pollster. It is what it is. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, David has us all beat as a former high school teacher at a disadvantaged urban school
0: yeah yeah i have i have yeah of
1: course it was a (laughs) terrible school that you worked at
0: so there's that it wasn't the best all right
1: uh but i digress we got so much to talk about Kristen, because she's been doing super cool opinion research about millennials and education let's do it in our ed reform update Okay, so Kristen, you've done now I think what, two two rounds of surveys looking at millennial views on education reform. Latest one came out in December. And I'm always curious, both you know, what what do we know about millennials and their views on ed reform and i'm also particularly curious if we know anything about how they they uh they are different from the views of say gen xers or baby boomers so let's get to it what do you know
2: in our study we focused on folks who are parents of students in the k-12 public schools and who are also millennials so yeah. these are people born between 1981 and 1996 yeah. um, in so you know, some of the folks in our research had kids in high school. I mean they okay. they had children very young and so now they are the parents of high schoolers. So this yep. is not just, you know, parents of kindergartners and things like that. I think yep. sometimes people assume millennials means the kids these days. That that's Gen Z. Gen right. Z is the kids is these the days. Kids, millennials right. are like mostly in their, you know, in their 30s. Right. Um but what we found, we we really focused this project on the issue of accountability. Mm-hmm. What should schools be accountable for? Mm-hmm. How do parents want to know if if their school is doing what they think they should be accountable for. Mm-hmm. And if the school is not living up to those expectations, what would they support being done to hold yep. that school accountable yep. for those outcomes? So, what well, I. Let
1: me guess pe- people aren't. People don't love testing. Let
2: well, me. you know, so part of what we wanted to do with the project was we kind of. I have done so many projects where we find out that people don't love testing. That yep. I kind of wanted to get beyond that and figure out what value do they see in testing and, and what would make them like tests more. So something we did in the project was we asked parents in our focus groups, you know, what does success look like to you when your child graduates from high school? What should they be able to know how to do? And very few people were saying, well, they should be able to read, write, and do math at grade level. You know, most were saying things like, I want my kid to be confident. I want them to be able to succeed in the workforce. I Mm -hmm. want them to set goals for themselves to be able to build Mm -hmm. good relationships. Mm -hmm. These are things that are not actually tested particularly (laughs) well in conventional Mm -hmm. standardized tests. So you see where that disconnect happens.
1: But but don't you think, I mean, they sort of take for granted that their kids are going to read and do math and write I mean it's not that they wouldn't want that
2: right? And so, that in the 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 survey we took about 17 different skills Um, some were life skills some were workforce skills some were very pure academic skills ranged from can read, write and do math at at grade level all the way to can change a tire can balance a checkbook can read a lease document I was most fascinated by the way by all of these (laughs) millennials who were insistent that their kids should learn how to balance a checkbook in school I'm like aren't you all using online banking like it's kind of what is that it's a different world now, but yep. it's, it's just sort of shorthand for mm. life skills. Yeah. Um, and we would say, okay, on a scale of zero to 10, mm. with zero meaning, doesn't matter if they know how to do this when they graduate. And 10 meaning, it's v- extremely important. Um skills like read write and do math at grade level were kind of in the same mix as be able to you know succeed in the workforce mm-hmm. be able to have those personal relationships now then we asked a second question which was we put all of those 17 skills out and said okay on a scale of zero to 10 mm-hmm. how much should teaching the skill be your responsibility mm-hmm. as a parent versus the school's responsibility so a zero means it's all on the parent schools shouldn't have any responsibility 10 means it's all on the school parents should have no responsibility every Every skill was above a five, including mm. change attire, including, oh my goodness. you know, my kids should be able to form good relationships and those sorts of things. I mean, That's on the Millennial school. parents expect the school to take a huge role in not just... Yeah. I mean the the reading writing math those were the top 3 but they were statistically extremely close to things like be able to you know live independently and and what have you. So nowadays I think the one thing that really makes millennial parents unique is the amount of things they expect the school to do while they are, mm-hmm. you know, having, maybe they're a single parent, maybe it's a two-income household, that, that mm-hmm. parents these days are so stretched, they're pushing a lot of responsibility onto the schools, which is stressing the schools. It's harder for mm-hmm. these teachers to keep up, and then the teachers feel pulled in a million different directions. Wait, I don't just have to teach math and reading. I now also have to teach all of these other right, things right, and right. Sort of be a co-parent.
1: It's Oh, it's I promised I wouldn't say mean things about millennial parents, but I'm having a hard time. I, Come on! <laughs> and how could I mean, look, of, of course, we want all these things for our kids. And of course, the schools play a role. I mean, the kids are spending a lot of time there every day. So they're gonna play a role in how they get along with our kids and do these things. But it still should be our responsibility. I don't know. What do you think, David?
0: Uh, It takes a village, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well,
2: I think the (laughs) the reason why this connects to this then question of assessments and things is we then asked, okay, we took five of the skills that we expected would come in pretty high on the list, the reading, the writing, the math, and then building personal relationships and being prepared for college or some other kind of school beyond high school. And we said, how do you as a parent know your child is on track for these things? And we gave them options like I look at their test scores. I talk to their teachers. Mm-hmm. I talk to my child. I look at the work they produce for things like math, reading, uh, math and reading tests were kind of middle of the pack. Like they weren't a non-factor. Okay. But it's these other things that parents also think are important. The relationship mm-hmm. building, being ready for college. In fact, they didn't think that tests were a particularly big piece of the puzzle there. For that, it was, I want to talk to my child. I want to hear what their goals are. Mm-hmm. I want to understand if they have the work ethic and the temperament to to succeed there. So I think it really raises the question, are there ways to develop assessments that are more holistic? Or would that make millennial parents feel more comfortable with them Mm -hmm. now the other thing about assessments that I thought was fascinating is they were uncomfortable with the idea of assessments grading their own child Mm -hmm. my kid might not be a good test Mm -hmm. taker and so on and so forth but they were a little more open to the idea that at a school level a school's aggregate performance on tests compared to other schools in the state could give you an indication of is a school a good school is the school doing what it's supposed to do you know in one of our focus group sessions we asked parents um you know what do you think about tests as a measure of how schools are and they were kind of hemming and hawing oh you know i don't know some kids aren't good test takers and then you'd say okay if you were moving into a neighborhood mm-hmm. and there were or you were choosing where you were going to live and you the houses cost the same but the schools in one neighborhood had higher average test scores would that be a factor and they go oh yeah 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 so at the same time they were saying oh you know i don't know that i love yeah. tests They were willing to acknowledge that they do think that they have some value in telling you, is a school doing what we expect it to do? Well,
1: there's a new study out uh, that looks at the impact of the great schools' ratings on housing prices, showing that uh, when those ratings are introduced into a given community— uh, suddenly you see the housing prices go up significantly more when the schools do well. So we actually, and I mean, this, this means there is real behavior out there in the marketplace. Of course, parents pay attention to those scores. And, and for their own kids, look, this is right on track with what we've been learning from the Learning Heroes research, where they also find that parents don't take the test too seriously, but as a result, many, many parents out there think that their kids are doing well, that they're on track uh, because the report cards are looking good and what they're hearing from the teachers is looking good when we know, you know, that look, like it or not, these basic skills do matter. They do predict whether kids are going to be ready years later for college. And so, you know, how do we help parents understand and face some difficult news that their own kid may not be on track and may need help and may need the parent to do something about it, including if they have to, looking for a school that's going to serve their needs better.
2: One of the things that I think is perhaps missing when it comes to millennial parents is an understanding of how assessments have changed since they were in school. I mean, I grew up in the state of Florida. I took the FCAT tests. Mm-hmm. It was the Scantron bubble mm-hmm. sheet. I mean, I know that the world of assessment looks different than when yeah. I was a- in school. And I think a lot of millennial parents, you know, we grew up in an era where we did take a you lot of tests, tests in schools. Right. And so there. I think in some cases there may be an assumption that the tests that, are, that our kids are taking now are, are the same as what we took. And we yeah. thought those tests were kind of silly and not a good indicator of where we were. And so why would the tests be a good yeah. indicator of where our kids are? And so, you know, I, I just wonder to what extent do, do millennial parents not know what they don't know about yeah. the way that assessments yeah. have changed and look a little bit different now? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh tough stuff. I mean especially now one more thing from the learning heroes piece though is that they did find that when parents viewed their own found out that their own schools were not rated highly like they say were a C or a D school based on test results then they started to look more skeptically at the news they were getting about their own child's performance. So that was interesting that if you're told look your kid's school is not very good then you start to wonder all right but they're getting straight A's hmm I wonder if that's really a meaningful measure of their
0: performance. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's tough sledding psychologically. It is, uh, it is. Uh, I I guess I'm curious. I mean, I'm encouraged that parents continue to value test scores when they are evaluating schools because personally, I think that's something, I mean, I relate to that, that distinction, honestly, Mm -hmm. you know, your child a lot better than, you know, some school that's out there in the universe. And so you're simply open to more new information and, and new information does more for you, Mm -hmm. uh, in that case. So, I guess, I mean... My guess is you also found that millennials are all uh, are more open to school choice or at least more just sort of fluent in it. Is that well, fair?
2: So in our research that we did last year, we focused a lot on school choice. And what we found was that it varied in our focus groups. It varied dramatically by what location you were in. So we yeah. did one focus group here in the mid-Atlantic in a community that did not have a big tradition of school choice. Mm-hmm. And here, the, the parents we talked to were, were a bit more skeptical. They were concerned about, well, mm-hmm. what, what will this mean? Whereas we went to Denver and found that parents there thought that school choice was great. They loved that they were able to say, look, my kid is really good at at art and music. And there's this charter or this option over here that really focuses on that. And so for them, it was almost like exposure to choice had made them much more comfortable. We also did focus groups in Atlanta where, you know, some parents weren't quite so sure and others who were in different parts, maybe perhaps a different district. Mm -hmm. They, their child had enjoyed the benefits of school choice, had moved to different schools in like some of these parents yeah. were evangelizing to others in the room about it. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, I think you know, school choice is one of those things that, in the abstract, if it's not implemented in your area, millennial parents can be a little like, "Well, wait, what does this mean?" But yeah. in communities where we had seen it implemented, the parents were very positive about the idea that they could find a school that was right for their individual child.
1: Yeah, no, it's like like microclimates. Uh, yeah, I mean, right here in the D.C. area, Montgomery County, where I live, there's very little choice, and parents seem to not expect much choice, and you know. That's just how it is. And then, you know, a few miles away in D.C., there's a million choices and parents love it. Uh, You kind of grow used to what you're accustomed to, Mm -hmm. I guess. Well, thank you so much, Kristen Soltis Anderson, again at Echelon Insights. Uh, Great stuff. I hope you'll come back on the show sometime. Thanks
2: so much. Absolutely. All
1: right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. I, I tried my hardest in that last segment not to be too tough on millennials. But as a Gen Xer, we can't help <laughs> ourselves. Can't help Don't you remember it. people used to make fun of us all the time? They
3: did. Like, we were the spoiled ones.
1: The, I thought what it was slackers. Was right, yes. We were a bunch of slackers. Woo. And then we started a bunch of dot coms and became bazillionaires.
0: And people all stopped right. saying that as much.
3: Seriously, we're, yeah. we're creative now yes. and, and entrepreneurial. Yes, exactly. Actually,
0: nobody, just, nobody talks about you anymore. Well, <laughs> just because we're smart. <laughs> That's all, the, and we're getting the small and mighty. older
3: and more obsolete. Is that <laughs> is that the implication? I, I don't know. know. It's crazy. So what you got for us? Uh, We have a new study by Matt Chingos and colleagues at Urban Institute that looks at the effects of the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Mm -hmm. on college enrollment Mm -hmm. and graduation. This is an update. Uh, Folks, if if you follow these types of studies, uh, another one came out in the fall of 2017. Okay. But this is expanding upon that study because now they can look at private and out-of-state colleges, which they weren't able to do before. Cool. And they have a longer time frame for college enrollment data. Now they're looking at through 2018 before they were through 2016. Okay. Okay. Um, They just, for those who don't know too much about the program, Provides private school scholarships to more than a 100,000 low-income students annually, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Largest program of its kind. Florida taxpayers receive a 100% tax credit for donations to scholarship funding organizations, which provides tuition assistance for low-income students to attend private schools. Participants must have a family income of up to 260% of the U.S. poverty threshold and receive scholarships up to $6,000. Mm-hmm. It was started in 0203. Mm -hmm. All right. The study used data on over sixteen thousand. I'm going to call them FTC students, and includes students who were expected to graduate from high school by 2015, 16, so they can observe their college enrollment within two years of expected graduation. They match just a little bit about the methods. They match each student in the treatment group to up to five non-participating students who were enrolled in the same baseline school grade. and year, and who had similar characteristics, including math and reading scores, language, nativity, race, ethnicity, disability status, age, FRL,
1: participation. All good. But still, the selection but, bias right. is so there. It's a, right. This
0: it's, is not randomized. That's
3: uh, right. Doesn't make up Good job, for
0: the Look at you being skeptical. Have, I've
3: been doing this a long time. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. There could be unmeasured stuff like yeah. parental engagement. That's yep. always the big one people talk about. Yep. Religiosity. We could name a bunch of things that aren't measured. Anyway, it is what it is. Key findings, students who began participating in FTC in elementary or middle school are six percentage points more likely to enroll in college. So, about a 57% rate. Mm-hmm. That's compared to the comparison group's enrollment rate of 51%, so about an increase of 12%. This includes increased enrollment at both two and four year colleges mm-hmm. and reflects an increase in full time enrollment, not just part time enrollment. Mm-hmm. The effect in the four year sector is concentrated in private nonprofit colleges where FTC students are three percentage points more likely to enroll. The next point, as for the upper grades, there are larger effects across the board for students who first participated in high school. These students are 10 percentage points more likely to enroll in college, an effect, again, shared between two- and four-year colleges with increased effects at four-year private nonprofit colleges, the, the, Mm. the data point they didn't have before. Yeah. Um, where the FTC enrollment rate was about double that of the comparison group in those private nonprofit colleges. There were also larger effects for students who participate longer in the program. But again, those who persist in the program might be different in unmeasured ways Mm -hmm. than the kids who don't persist. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are positive impacts on bachelor's degree attainment as well. About an increase of one percentage point, which is about 10%, among students who entered the program in elementary or middle school and an increase of about 2 percentage points or 20% for those who entered in high school. Results are similar for associate's degrees for students entering FTC at elementary and middle school, but no significant impact for associate's degrees if you entered in high school. Mm -hmm. Again, results are stronger for those who persist in the program longer. All right. And then I'm like, okay, just how has the program changed? Because I got mm-hmm. to be a little curious about um, that. Um, and maybe you know about this, Mike, but the eligibility over the years has changed. This mm-hmm. is why it's completely ballooned. Yeah. Um, it's apparently been expend- extended to cover lower middle-income families, mm-hmm. um, but they reduce the voucher amount. Obviously, based on income, you don't get the full $6,000. Yeah. Um, and current law no longer requires a student in grades 6 through 12 to have been enrolled in a public school in the prior year. Mm-hmm. so they've opened it up that way. So mm-hmm. there's been some changes in and you know who who is eligible for the program but obviously these are uh, pretty positive
1: findings. These are positive findings. I I feel like in some of the press reports and press releases the numbers were much bigger. Like bigger. huge impacts in terms of that were being reported in terms of the percentage increases of
0: mm. maybe what, I had was that it percentage wrong. Percentage versus percentage. Well, maybe point? that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, I, I is think that they, percentage yeah, wise, it is they, a huge increase, right?
3: Right. Well, I yeah. mean, you guys I mean you guys I reported both. You yeah. know. Ten yeah, percent yeah, yeah. for some, twenty percent for the other.
0: I just want to make sure we've got it too. So it the, the effects were bigger for kids who started in high school.
3: In high school. But yes. also
0: for kids who persisted for longer. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. I mean, right. I have to be honest, I, I I'm sure they did the best possible job because obviously Chingos is a fantastic researcher, but is it's not intuitive to me that it would have a bigger effect in high school.
3: Yeah, where they yeah. where they came in high school. Yeah.
0: No, I, mean, it I know. I mean, it makes me wonder.
1: Well, it makes you wonder, right? Is it something about the comparison group, or I don't, I don't know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, then again, you think about look if you're starting in elementary school or middle school, that's a long time until you get to call it right. So mm-hmm. there's, right. A, lot there's a lot of intervening, intervening
0: factors, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Versus,
1: mm-hmm. uh, you know. Right. So high schools obviously right right there right there Boom. so yeah, exactly. and and if there's a lot of kids who are not persisting i mean do we have a sense of that is it
3: uh i mean i'm sure they did i didn't, I didn't dig in all right
1: i mean maybe that's the, just there's not that many kids actually making it all the way from elementary, elementary middle to middle and you know and and so sure if you drop out or you you end up going to a public high school uh, after going to a private uh, elementary school and middle mm-hmm. school then maybe that's a, a factor
0: yeah. yeah i mean look obviously it's good news right I, <laughs> My takeaway is that at worst, it's doing no harm, right? I am. I am. I'm sorry. I'm a sorry. I know. Yeah. I'm a little. I am a little concerned about the selection here, just because I. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I. It, it, the fact that it's uh, these kids are, are 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 switching out of high school, you know, and, and going to a private call. I mean, it's just not the average kid necessarily. Yeah. I know they're. I know they're matching, but I'm. I'm mm-hmm. a little, and the cons- the effects seem a little big. Yeah. Well,
1: it, look, this is, I think, good news. It is good news. Uh, and and it, it's also Florida, which has I consistently showed big, bigger impacts for this program than a lot of right. other places. Mm-hmm. And it's, so you'd keep wondering, what is it that Florida is doing right? On the surface, right. on the books, you'd say, you know, we'd look at their policies and say there's not a lot of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the schools have to participate in a statewide evaluation, but you don't get to right. see the results by school level. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in terms of testing or anything. On the other hand, what people have pointed out is that the, the, the nonprofit that run that oversees mm-hmm. most of the program Step Up for mm-hmm. Students does play a quality control yeah, that's role that's what
3: I was going to ask you Yeah, and, exactly. and they
1: you know they end up they have pushed some schools out of the program mm-hmm. they have you know and so they kind of people have said they play a little bit like a charter or school authorizer mm-hmm. uh, and so maybe some of that stuff is having an impact versus right. places where it really is uh, both, both in terms of policy and in terms of practice there's really no quality yes. control mechanisms for the schools
0: I mean the other exactly. thing it just makes me wonder right too is i think the outcomes matter right so it's entirely possible that mm-hmm. that the kids who go to these schools are not subject to the same sort of accountability pressures yeah right mm-hmm. and 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 so i i just i don't know i i wonder mm-hmm. this with all of the voucher research which is like i really want i mean i do think these are the right outcomes right mm-hmm. even though in some ways it's fuzzier uh because it's just such a different environment for the school to participate in mm-hmm. and and so it's entirely possible that uh, you wouldn't necessarily see effects in test scores or you'd see a negative effects and yeah. then, and then you would wind up. Realizing three or four years later that actually the kids were doing well on all kinds of other well, reasons outcomes. at the post-secondary mm-hmm. level. Mike, <laughs> <sat in laughs> <me>. no, <laughs> well, I'm had just saying. No, no, <laughs> I know, but I've I'm had trying this. to square this with like yes. you know the well, I, research yes. and other stuff to figure this. out what's going right, on. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. No, okay. it just okay. reminds have me. I read the arguments with Jay
1: Green and Pat. Well, it's not the same point as saying that it's bad to test kids, right? No, but the point is, I I'm curious now. I'm trying to remember for Florida if they have found test positive test score impacts because this question of whether right the test Score outcomes and the long-term outcomes line up, line up right. which, in my opinion, the most of the time, even in choice programs, we still do see them heading in the same, same direction. Well,
0: and I think, right. I mean, for me, because I'm on, I'm on your side with this one, right? But like, I am. I mean, I wrote a whole column about it, right? You but it, it just be, if even if they don't line up perfectly, it doesn't follow that you shouldn't. Have accountability, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to have some sort of window into what's happening. So, anyway, it is complicated, honestly.
1: Well,
3: good. Complicated,
1: shoot. Complicated, good. Thank you so much. And you didn't even
3: complain. I was longer than a minute. It's fine. (laughs) It's an important one and
1: an update, but still pretty significantly updated. So, right right? when you Uh, can
3: include the private school and you got a longer trend line, so.
1: Yeah. Good stuff. And it
3: was written well. Like ah. it was written for, it was a research brief written well. It was we love you, friendly. It had just enough methods for those people who just don't like methods. So Good. anyhow,
1: <laughs> right. there you go. Well, especially because it was so long. That is all the time we've got for this <laughs> week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing
0: off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.